guys welcome back to in crime thank you for supporting me on instagram and following me i really appreciate it i also want to thank everyone for giving me cases to cover i'm adding them all to my repertoire but certain cases i think i will never ever cover i was having a conversation with a friend regarding the double murder in noida the arushi talwar and hemraj murder i just think cases like that which have so much media coverage and everything that has to be said has already been said I really don't believe I can add any more to the conversation so I'll probably refrain from cases like that but otherwise just keep the suggestions going thank you Anyway let's get into today's case The USA in the 60s and 70s was truly plagued by the serial killer endemic You had Ted Bundy Ed Gein Jeffrey Dahmer you had the night stalker Richard Ramirez in the UK you had Dennis Nielsen All these people are household names because of the crazy media coverage and some sort of resurgence through Netflix documentaries. We really don't need another Ted Bundy movie. But back in India in the 60s, we had our own homegrown serial killer, a man who terrorized Mumbai and was all kinds of brutal. This is the case of Raman Raghav, India's Jack the Ripper. Also, just a trigger warning, this case has instances of sexual assault and necrophilia. So if that's something you're uncomfortable with please skip this episode. Raman Raghav was born Sindhi Talwai in 1929 in Tiruneveli Tamil Nadu. There is little known about Raman's childhood or early life. Reports from the time describe him as a tall, well-built man who had little school education and was homeless. Before he moved to Pune sometime in the 1940s to look for a better life, his roommate was found dead, but no one ever suspected Raman. He had one friend here in the village Michael who fashioned him an akada out of metal which will become very important later on. In this village he married a woman who unfortunately just after a few years of marriage cheated on him. He then married another woman who he later learned had a former husband. Raman tarnished this woman as another man's reject. His disdain for women started taking shape after these two events. He used to tell people that he did not believe in God because God was partial to women. He even left his village because he claimed his aunt was jealous of him. But that was not the reason he bounced. Raman had raped his younger sister before stabbing her in the chest. He was finding it incredibly hard to re- escape the rumors of two dead bodies in his vicinity. He could not explain the situation of first a dead roommate and now a raped and murdered sister. Raman found it easier to pack his bags and leave. Supposedly after moving to Pune he changed his name to Raman Raghav. In Pune Raman committed petty thievery. He was arrested for these crimes and put in prison for 5 years. His short stint in prison and rush with the law Raman moved to the outskirts of Mumbai where he along with many other homeless people lived on the fringes of society. Let's talk about Mumbai in the 60s. India gained independence from Britain in 1947 and bloody protests followed. over where to draw the borders of the bombay state in 1960 the state was split along linguistic lines and mumbai embarked on a decade of cultural boom the swinging 60s as it was called was a schism jazz clubs and high end restaurants popped up across the city despite the indian government's import sanctions on western pop music beatlemania broke through and college students formed bands to create the beat group scene Bombay was the place to be if you were a feminist if you were gay or if you were just looking for a gleeful time. 
However, you had to be upper middle or upper class to have access to India's cultural progress. In the same city was the visual of distant suburbs dotted with ramshackle shanties and huts, mostly peopled by migrant workers. In such squalid suburb, Raman Raghav made his home. Now, in his late 30s, Raman had a very discernible look. Although he looked ordinary, he liked being well-groomed. He would regularly massage his body with coconut oil, comb his hair and carry a mirror to see how he was looking. He was extremely finicky about his looks. He never got into fights or kept grudges. Nobody in the suburb would just, by his outward appearance, judge that this man would go on to kill 40 people in the span of three years and become India's most prolific serial killers. Raman's murders took place in quick succession. Although they happened over the span of three years, they can be divided into two lots. The first being between 1965 and 1966. In December 1965, Raman started his killing spree. He had no motive, no plan. But he did have a very stringent MO. He would target homeless people at the night. They would be sleeping in a row and Raman would attack them one by one. The victims were hit only above the neck with his akada, And the fatal blow was immensely forceful. So the akada was basically an iron club with one end tapering. At this stage, he was not as bold as his further crime will soon devolve into. He attacked people along the central railway line in Raigalwada. He attacked in spurts, one month gap in between them. He walked along the line in the dead of the night and just swung his club. He would attack with one horrifying blow, so deadly that there would not even be a whimper to wake the next person up. He was merciless, killing women and men. Although he attacked 19 people during this year, he killed 9 men, close to one death per month. Not much is known about these deaths, none of the victims' names, which will be a common theme in this case. Not even the statistics, unfortunately. How many men or women? Those who survived to tell the horrific account of a scrawny-looking man. On his last killing spree of 1966, Kirtika, one of the survivors, gave a very extensive description of the killer. And the police immediately suspected Raman Raghav. The description fits him, but there was no other proof or evidence tying him to the scenes. The police took his photographs and fingerprints and had to let him go. This definitely spooked Raman. He took a year-long hiatus until 1978, where his crimes become more gruesome and more macabre. The murder stopped, but the respite was short-lived. The body started piling up again in 1968. Raman now, with an extra-long cooling-off period, was attacking people in the slums with more aggression and carelessness. During this period, he is said to have killed 30 people. I have found some information about some of the murders which I will detail, but a few things were different from his first murder spree in 1968. His weapon changed. It was now a broken axle of a motor truck, which he had modified for good grip. And unlike the last year, when he was careful, now he was a lot messier. In the 30 cases, the forensics found blood splattered across hut walls, staining tin boxes, walls of stable, floors beneath charpoys, on slippers left on floors, or even on the metal of migrant luggage boxes. He also spread out his murders instead of targeting just one road. He was now spread across Malad, Oshivara, Gorgaon, Kandivali, Borvili, and Dahisar. 
bodies were recovered from slushy pathways and crowded cattle sheds run by migrants from North India. Some were found on either side of the Bombay-Ahmedabad highway. Bodies were also found in their own huts and houses. Raman would enter their huts in the dead of the night and kill everyone in the space. One such victim was Devram Barwad. It was a night in August 1967. A dog barked and the milkman, Lakshman Jeta, had been alerted by his dog. When he heard nothing more, he retreated. Raman stayed hidden in the shadows as he waited for the dog and Jeta to fall asleep. In less than an hour, as the colony slumbered, his crowbar picked a target and went to work. On the fifth strike, Jeta's relative and fellow milkman, Devram Barwad, was a corpse on a charpoy. With the silence of the night restored, Raman was in no hurry. He sat next to the body and silently polished off leftover dinner in the hut, rice, rotis and buttermilk. He had mastered this routine. At four homes, he had eaten his victim's dinner, sitting right next to their bleeding heads. He also took a matchbox, a few beadies, two toe rings and a silver ring from a bag hanging on the wall. Healing was something new as well. He would constantly filch stuff from crime scenes. The things he stole from the crime scene made the case trickier to solve because the cops no longer knew what was genuine and what was a red herring. A stuff and an umbrella were missing from an Oshivara hut, a wristwatch, a jar of ghee from the house of a mill hand at Hanuman Nagar, a pair of spectacles from Buff Polisher's house in Parek Nagar. He once picked up a 10 paise corn from a body and made it off with boxes of dalda and flour. In one particular instance, in 1968, he waited for five days, keeping a watch outside a hut in Malad, where a couple lived with their two-month-old son. A gold necklace worn by the woman had caught Raman's fancy. On the fifth day, he entered the house. He smashed the skull of the husband first and killed the son while he made the mother watch. He then, similarly to her husband, killed the wife in a slow, painful way. After killing her, he raped and stole the chain of her body. The next day, when he went to the pawnbroker, he was informed that the chain was fake. Raman now, because he took his time with the killings, was able to give in to his urges of wanting to rape his female victims. His hatred of women takes a particular priority with Raman, killing close to 15 of them. One such woman was Shantabai, who was sleeping with her two infants on the pavement. He watched her intently for a minute before bashing her skull in. There were three straight strikes before she became motionless, just the way he saw her first. He spared the babies. Raman undressed and raped her corpse. Shantabai was lactating, so Raman sucked and drank her milk, which is extremely terrifying. During the years 1966 and 1968, the murders were spread over two months. There was at least one week in August when a body was found every day. There was no rhyme or reason to why his victims were killed. It was a strange mix of power and fear. He would have killed someone older to show power, but then with the same beat, he would kill as young as six months old to show fear. It's very difficult to explain why Raghav killed the baby, but one thing was certain. There was no guilt about his cold-blooded acts, and he was completely remorseless. Sometimes, Raman would kill a couple of people in one night. It was also the first case that saw Mumbai Crime Branch Detection Room use a full-size map of the city. So when this next spree of murders took place, 
the crime branch set up a special task force led by IPS officer Ramakan Sheshagiri Rao Kulkarni. He was perfect for this case. He was young and fiery. He had just taken over as DCP CID in Bombay. And when he was handed this red-hot case, Raman was forever scarred. Days and days, he would pore over the map trying to make a connection. I would go to bed praying no fresh body should emerge. By morning, wireless would only add to the body count. He was quoted saying years later. I just want to do a quick deep dive into Officer Kulkarni. Ramakant Sheshagiri Rao Kulkarni, who was called the Sherlock Holmes of India, became a legend in India in the 60s and 70s for solving high-profile cases like the Raman Raghav killings, the Manvath murders, to catching hold of foreign smugglers of ammunition gold. Raman Raghav was in fact his first high-profile case. Officer Kulkarni has written a book called Footprints in the Sand, which I did end up reading to research this case. And I purely read the book because I was looking for something to read on Raman Raghav. But I got hooked onto it so quickly that I ended up reading the entire autobiographical account of the myriad of cases, including the assassination of Indira Gandhi. His account of his experiences is extremely fascinating, working in days long before computers, mobile phones, advanced forensic technology, and solving cases mainly with the help of good old police work, informants and basic fingerprinting, he explains the importance of understanding basic human psychology as well as a typical geopolitical nuances and working with locals in solving criminal cases. It's a lengthy but very enjoyable read. I would really recommend the book. It's called Footprints in the Sand by Ramakant Kulkarni. So back to the case. With dead bodies turning up everywhere in the slums, the streets of Bombay had not seen such fear. The fearful city fought off sleep. Vigilante groups filled with nervous men began picking on any suspicious-looking person lurking in the dark. Mob justice was harsh. To make matters worse, in June, July in Mumbai, there was an English newspaper strike in the middle of all the killings. In the absence of actual, factual news, rumours spread faster. Public imagination ran wild. At some places, he was spotted rushing into a bush with a bird flying off from the swamp. In another instance, a dog was seen coming out of a hut where a murder had taken place. Soon, the rumours had spread that he could change his form. He could become a parrot, a dog or a cat. Some insisted that he had an alien presence about him, that he had supernatural powers. And the crowd's irk was directed at fakirs and sadhus. IPS officer Kulkarni, however, made the connection between the successive murders and the ones that happened two years ago, along the central jail line. IPS officer Kulkarni, however, made the connection between these successive murders and the ones that happened two years ago, along the central jail line. He pulled up those case files and identified Raman Raghav. His photographs and fingerprints were gathered, and the police now just needed a lucky break to connect the murders. His last victim was the forensic breakthrough they needed. It came from Danjiwadi in Malad, where a woman and her infant had been killed. Raman had left behind an umbrella and an iron rod shaped like the figure 7. It was raining this evening and Raman, as usual, made a huge mess. He left his crowbar near the victim's head and picked up a pair of rimmed glasses as well as an umbrella and fled the scene. The police were quick to reach the crime scene and picked up fingerprints. When matched, they all pointed to Raman Raghav the major suspect in the Central Railway Line murders. The police now had photographs and a description to circulate around. A manhunt for Raman Raghav began, 
and now with a face to search, wireless patrols spread across the city on August 19th with the photograph. Close to 2,000 police officers were on duty. Did you know that the first case ever solved by fingerprint matching was in 1897? So that is 1.25 years ago. Francesca Roja is believed to be the first criminal found guilty through fingerprint evidence in the world. On 29th June 1892, 27-year-old Roja murdered her two children in Buenos Aires. Her six-year-old son, Carbello Roja, and his four-year-old sister, Feliza, were found brutally murdered in their home. And then Francesca tried to simulate an attack by cutting her own throat and then blamed the murders on her neighbour. The police officers on the case discovered a brown mark on a bedroom floor, which after careful examination determined to be a bloody fingerprint. They removed the section of the door with the impression and then requested Rojas to be fingerprinted. Once completed, they compared the impression on the door to that of Rojas and then individualized it to her. When confronted with this evidence, Roja broke down and confessed to the murders. She was subsequently convicted. To this day, fingerprinting remains the topmost forensic evidence while solving crimes. In the year 2020, Bangalore City Police solved close to 207 cases using fingerprint evidence. That is 80% of all the crimes committed and solved. Ordinary thefts, house burglaries, robberies, dacoities and rapes are usually the highest number of cases solved by fingerprinting. Okay, back to Mumbai, who now had a face to put to the crimes. It was not long before eyewitnesses started coming forward regarding the sightings of Raman Rakov. On August 24th, a woman in Poizar in the western suburbs confirmed she had spotted him. He was wearing khaki half pants, a blue shirt and, a, and brown canvas shoes. He had an umbrella tucked under his arms. It was the then sub-inspector, Alex Fialo, who was roaming around Bhindi Bazaar and he spotted the suspect. He used to carry a photograph of Ra- Raman in his shirt pocket. Sub-inspector was waiting for a bus and saw a well-built man in khaki shorts and a long blue bush shirt walking towards him. Apparently, something about the man struck him and he instinctively decided to follow him. As Raman walked past him, he gave the sub-inspector a fearful look. He glanced again and now Alex was sure. He walked up to him, placed his hand on the man's shoulder. The man said his name was Raman Rakov. Inspector Alex searched him and his belongings consisted of a pair of spectacles that he stole from a victim, two combs, a pair of scissors, a stand for burning incense, soap, garlic, tea dust, and two pieces of paper with some mathematical figures on them. His clothes were stained in blood and his fingerprints matched the ones on the police record. Finally, Raman Raghav was convicted. Alex was offered 10,000 rupees for his catch. In custody, Officer Kulkarni had to do a double take. If you looked at him, nobody could have said that he could be a killer. That to a serial killer. His outward appearance was deceptive and showed no symptoms of madness. A well-groomed killer like Raman was extremely conscious about his experience. It's much easier to identify a madman than a person like Raman, Kulkarni writes in his book. But Raman Raghav in custody was very, very madman-like. When he was convicted, there was a sense of relief. It seemed like the burden was off his shoulders. But he refused to talk. He would just nonchalantly talk to the investigating officers about their lives and kids, but never about their cases. This went on for four weeks straight, until one day Raman asked the police officer for chicken curry. 
Two investigation officers and Raman were sitting in the interrogation room of the crime branch office when someone casually asked him whether there was anything else he wanted. Without a moment's thought, without even batting an eyelid, Raman Raghav said, Murgi. Next, he wanted hair oil, a comb and a mirror. I would have also liked a prostitute, but I guess the law does not permit that while one is in custody, Raman was quoted saying. After massaging his body with coconut oil, he combed his hair, looked into the mirror for a few seconds. He then agreed to talk. Raman confessed to committing 41 murders. He led the police in a vehicle to show them the iron akada that he used to commit the murders, knives and other things that were hidden in the bushes of the milk colony. When asked why he killed people, he said that he had directions from God to do so. And now begins the bizarre part where I detail Raghav's grandeur of delusions and his hallucinations. Throughout his interviews, he showed ideas and reference and fixed and systemized delusions of persecution and grandeur. That there are two distinct worlds. The world of Kanun. This Kanun or wireless messages in his head were what was instructing him to kill. A fixed and unshakable belief that people were trying to change his sex. That they are not successful because he was representative of Kanun. To prevent his sex change, he had to rape and kill women. A fixed and unshakable belief that he is power or Shakti. A firm belief that there are people who are trying to put homosexual temptations in his way so that he may succumb and get converted to a woman. And that he was 101% man, whatever that means. A belief that the government brought him to Mumbai to commit thefts and made him commit criminal acts. And finally, an unshakable belief that there are three governments in India. The Akbar government, the British government and the Congress government. And then these governments were trying to persecute him and put temptations before him. A charge sheet was prepared and the trial began. Raman's defence lawyer P.V. Power pleaded to the additional sessions judge that his client did not understand the repercussions of his acts. A psychiatrist observed Raman for a month and declared him mentally sound, and thus he was sentenced to death. The accused is neither suffering from psychosis or mentally retarded. His memory is sound, his intelligence average, and is aware of the nature and purpose of his acts. He is able to understand the nature and object of the proceedings against him, and not certifiably insane, the final verdict states. Raman was placed in Yarwada jail, awaiting the hanging date. His lawyer, however, was relentless. Power appealed again that Raghav was mentally ill. This led the Bombay High Court to refer Raman to a special medical board of three psychiatrists. The panelists said that Raman was suffering from chronic paranoid schizophrenia and in all the five interviews he gave to the medical board, Raman showed ideas of insanity. The delusions which the accused experienced were about two distinct worlds, the world of Kanun and the world in which he lived. The accused has thought or has suffered from delusion, that he was acting under the command of a law which was higher than the law of the land. He also regarded that it was his obligatory upon him to follow the kanun which told him to kill people. Raman's delusions made him see ordinary men as adversaries who turned into women and lured him to sleep with him, challenging his manhood. He had no option but to hack them down. Raman's sentence was reduced from death by hanging to life imprisonment because he was found to be incurably mentally ill. He was lodged at Yarwada Central Jail and was under the treatment at the Central Institute of Mental Health and Research.
when a panel of doctors examined him at the directive of the high court, found that he could never be cured. In prison, other captives kept their distance from Raman. The Joshi Abhyankar serial killers, who committed their crimes in the 70s, were also lodged at Yarwada Central Prison. And every prisoner was afraid of them. But these killers were terrified of Raman. He evoked fear even when he was chained. In 1995, Raman died at Sasun Hospital. He had been suffering from kidney failure. And that was the story of one of India's most prolific serial killers who terrified the streets of Mumbai in the 70s. Let me know if you want me to cover more cases like this. The only issue with cases like this is that there's very little known about the victims, but I would love to cover more serial killers like Cyanide Mohan or even the Joshi Abhyanka serial killers. But that is it for today. Uh, Follow me on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and like and rate. It really does help. Also follow me on Instagram for updates. Thank you. See you soon and have a good one.